make of the exit poll, John McDonnell? Well, if the, if, the seats, if the seat tally comes out that way, it's going to be extremely disappointing. Of course it is. Well, spoiler alert, uh, the, the, it, it held. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Justin Robert Young for Politics, 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 the December 13, 2019 edition of the program. Hello. Huge news out of the UK politically. We have a massive, massive blowout for the conservatives. We, uh, it was so big, I had to call Tom. I, I had to have an emergency uh, meeting with Tom. We, we did the, uh, the, the BX3 stuff on Wednesday. I had to bring him back to talk about this uh, uh, because, man, I, I don't normally pay attention to UK politics this closely, but I was learning all those little towns and stuff. They got such silly names. I don't even know what the hell it means, but uh, I do know this. Boris Johnson just uh, uh, cobbled together the largest conservative party majority since Margaret Thatcher. Jeremy Corbyn's career as the head of the Labor Party looks to be at an end, and we have so much more with Tom on that. We also have an interview all about tariffs. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but on these Friday episodes, what I like to do is give you a big helping of like smart stuff. Cause I know you got a few extra days. You don't have to blast through it all at once. I want this to be your like nice Sunday relaxing kind of thing. Your Saturday relaxing kind of thing. So I'm trying to get this episode out a little bit early. So spoiler alert, if you're looking for news that happened on Friday, normally I do it on Friday, but I'm doing this on Thursday night. Cause I got some travel here. So interview about tariffs, interview about the Brexit results. I mean, geez, the election results, but it might as well have been the Brexit results considering the fact that that was really what everybody voted for. In the meantime, I was hoping that by the time that I recorded this, I would be able to have the official sound of the Judiciary Committee approving the articles of impeachment, but oh my good God, they are still droning on. It is uh, pushing toward 10 o'clock and literally everybody involved has... Just gone and on 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 and on. That's going to happen tonight, even if it is, you know, late, late, late into the night. They're going to take a vote that everybody knows what the results are going to be, and it's going to be on party lines, and then it's going to get sent to the House, and then I'm going to predict that it's happening on Wednesday of next week that the House will vote on it. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm predicting at this point, according, according to current reporting, that about six Democrats will not vote for it, which, by the way, would be four more than the two that didn't vote for it uh, initially. And the only other housewide vote that was taken on this. And then it's going to go to the Senate. And uh, then because this is a life changing constitutional crisis that needs to be dealt with immediately. The Senate's going to take Christmas break. So, of course, I mean, come on. They're not insane. They're not monsters. They're not Grinches, right? Of course. I mean, yes, this is an absolute once in a generation. You need to stop this tyrant and his tracks problem. But also, bells will be ringing. The sad, sad news. We will push off impeachment. And so they're going to come back in January, and then I'm going to predict this. I'm throwing this out there. I haven't even looked at a calendar, right? I haven't even looked at a calendar. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to say it's January 13th. January 13th, there's going to be a vote, and that's going to be on party lines. And Donald Trump, by way of Mitch McConnell's handling of this, will be acquitted. This is the new strategy by by Cocaine Mitch. He's going to quit Trump, not just dismiss the charges. He's going to quit it. Now, functionally, it means the exact same thing, but they want to put more of a uh, a basket of ammunition in Trump's hands, and so they're going to do it. And so by January 14th, all of the senators that are currently running for president, up to and including Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren, so, you know, three Democrats that the Democratic Party cares about, 
and Bernie Sanders will go back to Iowa. And uh, hopefully by that point, Biden hasn't punched a dude. And uh, there's been no other report that Pete Buttigieg consulted for the Death Star when he was working with McKinsey. And so that's what's going to happen. I hate to spoil it. Because, boy, I love unfolding this story just one origami tab at a time. But uh, I'm telling you right now just because uh, I'm pressed for time. So there we go. I've spoiled the next two months. I would like to welcome back our UK correspondent, live and direct from Los Angeles, California. Tom, what the hell happened? Uh... It turns out that Brexit really was the only issue that people (laughs) in the UK cared about. And uh, Boris Johnson and the Lib Dems were both right. But Boris Johnson was more right about what they thought about it. And uh, the conservatives have just run the table. I mean, it sounds like, you know, the the results that are coming in are matching the exit polls. And we're going to have five years of Boris Johnson well, hopefully, for the conservatives, Boris Johnson, as the prime minister. So let, let's go ahead and, and, and break that down. This is a blowout, the likes of which we have not had in a very long time. This is the largest conservative majority that has been seen in the UK since Margaret Thatcher. Uh, Boris Johnson has done not only what Theresa May was unable to do in terms of this Brexit thing, but really... David Cameron or any other conservative leader before him. This is this is a massive mandate. Yeah. Uh, Labor's shadow chancellor, John McDonald, told the BBC, I thought it'd be closer. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, so it says it all. So let, let's go back to some of the threads that we had left from uh, Wednesday. This definitely means that exactly what Boris wants on Brexit is going to happen, right? Yeah, uh, we will probably see the legislation for the the exit, uh, which was the holdup. The deal was approved, but the legislation to enact it was where where the conflict came in. We will probably see that done by Christmas, uh, and and then have a, uh, an exit uh, in January. Um, so so thirty first of January would probably be the the next time that will have the, the will be the next available opportunity for them to really have the Brexit happen. But we'll get the legislation to make that happen on January 31st. So for the first time, it looks like we will have a date for an actual Brexit that will, in fact, actually happen. But then beyond that, this seems to be like a gigantic weapon also for the negotiations that we were talking about on Wednesday that are definitely going to be a lot stickier. But if he's got an 80-seat cushion... But that that leaves a lot of room. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, it doesn't make the task any easier. No, for no, no, Johnson, no, 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 no. Certainly. Yeah. But having majority rule means he's not going to have to do anything but work within his own party. Now, granted, there are a lot of folks within the conservative party that were rebelling against things that Boris Johnson was doing. But I think now that they've got a majority, he won't have to try so hard to, you know, wave the flag of a hard exit. Uh, and and the conservatives can all kind of just fall in line behind him easier. Uh, and and so you'll probably see some folks welcomed back into the fold. That's already happened to a, to a large extent. And it takes the pressure off because they know we have five years in rule. We're not going to have to go have an election. Now, I say that anything's possible. You could have strife within the conservative party over the trade deal. But the trade deal is is the next thing. And you've got a couple years to to do that as well. Uh, it's not impossible that, you know, we see Groundhog Day return in a couple of years, but uh, this takes the pressure off of a lot of things and a lot of people right away. But it also gives Boris Johnson a tremendous negotiating lever because now the EU is not going to be looking back at him and saying, "Mm, you sure? You sure you can even get this done in your own party? You sure that you you don't want to hedge on this a little bit? Well, and honestly, they could now change things that are in the current deal for the trade deal. So the current deal just says, these are going to be the rules of the road after you're gone while we negotiate a full deal. Yeah. They could go and change the Irish deal and the DUP couldn't do anything about it at this point because they are no longer supplying those votes that the conservatives need. So this is a huge win for the conservatives. As it turns out, of course, uh, you know, uh, success has many fathers and failures in orphan, but the, the strategy for Boris Johnson to run on a fairly plain get Brexit done uh, platform 
combined with who we will talk about now, Jeremy Corbyn's strategy of, boy, are the conservatives mean, and they're going to dismantle the NHS, did not seem to animate voters. Yeah, as as much of a victory for the conservatives as this is, and like you said, biggest conservative victory since 1987, it is a much worse loss for labor. It's labor's worst result since 1935. Uh, and it was... Something that shouldn't have been a surprise, I don't think, when you see Lib De- the Lib Dems saying, well, we're going we're gonna to push for Remain. Maybe we can still get Remain done. It, it wasn't a bad strategy. I think they did pick up one seat, uh, but they certainly didn't fall apart worse than they had been. The conservatives won their majority partly because Boris Johnson picked the right message. You're tired of Brexit. Let us get it over with. Yeah. I think that resonated with he, the entire he, al- he also was very careful to... Not say anything stupid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, him and his, uh, you know, girlfriend <laughs> kept their voices down for a everything, month. Everything, yeah, everything you know? was under wraps for the for the period of the election. Uh, but also, Labor gave him a gift yeah. by not focusing on we can do Brexit better. That would have been a possible strategy that could have won for Labor. Uh, is to go head to head, say, yeah, the Lib Dems are are saying le- remain, but honestly, you know, that's a pipe dream. It's not going to happen. Uh, we can do it better. We can keep us in a customs union. They could have brought some remain people over to be like, well, you're right. We're probably going to leave. Let's leave on better terms. That would have been a winning, potentially winning message for labor. They didn't use it. Well, at least it would uh, have been coherent. So they, just, they gave a gift to Boris Johnson. Yeah, it, it would have been understandable. You know, when... You know, my uh, Twitter feed in the morning, which by and large are labor voters, are are talking. It's all videos of Steve Coogan talking about how mean the conservative party is. That doesn't win an election. The other guys are mean. Don't doesn't win, especially when you're dealing with something as consequential as Brexit. And certainly the downside to labor having taken that strategy would have been, well, these folks have a deal. You're pro- you're wanting to change the deal again, but that would have been that would have brought some people over to like, yes, I want it done, but I want it done right. Who are probably voting conservative because they just want it done. Uh, and, and I'm talking specifically about those folks in the in the Midlands and, and Wales. And that's you know the the biggest problem here in my mind is that following this Brexit negotiation stuff, all of the action was within the conservative party. It was the conservative party that couldn't get their ducks in a row under Theresa May. It was the conservative Mm -hmm. party that was shuffling their leadership. It was the conservative party that had selected Boris Johnson. It was the conservative party that had its own members leaving because they didn't like the deal that Boris Johnson had and they were going to, uh, afraid that it was going to be rammed through. The Labour Party, from an outsider's perspective, which on one hand, what the hell do I know? On the other hand, at least I know enough that I can pick up broad strokes of what the strategies are. The Labor Party seemed to be, well, I mean, some of us are for it. Some of us are against it. Uh, you know, we'll figure it out. And yeah. I don't think we'll figure it out was a compelling message. Uh, I think one of the, the, the telling results is Blythe Valley, uh, which has never had anything but a labor MP. It was created in 1950, so it's not one of those constituencies that's been around forever. Uh, but uh, conservatives took it. They 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 took a constituency that labor should always just count as safe. Uh, and and that th- that's telling right there. Uh, you're you're n- you're not going to win, and you're not going to stay in charge of your party. Furthermore, if you can't keep seats like that. Is this the death knell of the Jeremy Corbyn leadership of labor? Yes, no matter you're you're not going to hear anybody say that yet. Uh, I think the closest was John McDonnell again, the shadow chancellor for the labor, telling Andrew Neil at the BBC that decisions will be made about the party leader's future when the actual <laughs> results are in. Yeah, uh, but I, I think that's that's pretty fair to say he's he's done. Uh, there's no way that the party is going to continue to have faith in him when he has led it to its worst results since 1935. And I, I think just in general, they, they need a fresh coat of paint. Like, this is a different world, uh, this post-Brexit world, or the, the, the process of Brexiting world, uh, is, you know, I think would, would benefit from a fresh uh, fresh perspective. 
I mean, Jeremy Corbyn was the fresh perspective. Another right? like, another fresh perspective. Yeah, <laughs> Just it's, not it's like, this guy. <laughs> let's get an even fresher coat of paint. Uh, he's only been in the role for four years. Uh, he he took over after Ed Miliband uh, sort of it was thrown under the bus in a way because because of of poor showings. Uh, no, nothing has been solid for labor since Gordon Brown, and that's saying something. So it's it's time for soul searching for labor. They they had a, a brief, you know, a few months under Harriet Harman, uh, both before Ed Miliband and after, uh, just as an acting chairman. But otherwise, it's been Gordon Brown, Ed Miliband, and Jeremy Corbyn. And Gordon Brown, while he was prime minister, was not considered a terribly successful labor leader uh, compared to, you know, the Neil Kinnicks and Tony Blair's and Harold Wilson's, et cetera, uh, Clement Attlee. It's not, it, you, labor really needs an entire makeover. I don't think they need just a new coat of paint. I think they need a new barn. So the other big winner, if there is another big winner, is the Scottish National Party. They gain a ton of seats. You had previewed this on Wednesday but uh, it seems like we are headed to another Scottish independence referendum. Oh, yeah, because the only place that it seems like the conservatives lost seats were in Scotland to the SNP. Uh, and that's going to happen. There is going to be another referendum on Scottish independence, and it is not going to be as clearly remain in the UK as it had been. Now, I don't think it's a lock as I do with Jeremy Corbyn leaving the Labour Party uh, leadership. I don't think it's a lot that Scotland leaves. A lot can happen between the time they are elected now and the time they actually get on the ballot, make it happen, get it past the Queen, all of the things that happen to ha have to happen uh, to, to set it up. It, it's not going to happen right away. And by then, so many other conditions will have changed. And whether the Conservatives can persuade Scotland that they're better inside the UK uh, is something that Boris Johnson will have to pay attention to. The other thing that seemed to be floated is obviously the DUP, the Northern Irish uh, Party, was necessary under the Theresa May gamble because she wasn't able to form a government and now is an afterthought with such a muscular advantage for the conservatives. But do you think we could see a, a united Ireland push? That that's a tougher one. Uh, the idea of a united Ireland is is so fraught with peril uh, that I I doubt that. If we had had worse results in the Irish Compromise on Brexit, maybe. Uh, and I I wouldn't put off the idea that any future trade pact might show some weaknesses, or this weird drawing the border down the Irish Sea might show some weaknesses. But right now. From what I can tell, and I don't pretend to speak for the Irish, but it seems like people in Ireland don't want anything that's going to make things worse. Uh, the way things are working right now is pretty good. You can just drive into Northern Ireland when you need to, and you don't have to show a passport. And in that, if that's going to stay the same, I don't think you see a big sea change. I'm not seeing how the DUP is doing in Northern Ireland right now, uh, so that'll be interesting to tell. I, my instinct says, Justin, that we're not going to see conditions change in Northern Ireland that much. But what do I know? Well, and the other thing is, compared to the last Scottish independence question, Boris Johnson is going to have a new trade deal that he can carve out specifically to make the Scottish happy. Right. Yes. Like that, that is that is an advantage that David Cameron did not have when it's like, well, you know, I don't know. We'll we'll go to Brussels and we'll <laughs> don't worry. Things will be cool. We'll just make it cool in Brussels. But now this is going to fully rest on the desk of Boris Johnson. That'll be a big question is if he can pull off the reverse magic. Right. He, he pulled off the magic of of saying, let me get a deal. Let me get a better deal with the EU. And it's arguably a worse deal from a lot of perspectives. But he got a deal that played better. Yeah. Right. And so he he, he was able to assuage. Uh, problems within his own party to a certain extent uh, and with his coalition partners. Now he's got a stronger hand to run the government, but he will have to assuage the SMP and he's did it with the DUP barely. Uh, let's see what he can do with a, with a arguably much stronger party and a much stronger point of view, but with more tools in his toolbox. Well, and we're going to be at the dawning of new trade deals. 
Like that's that the tools is, I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the big that's the big advantage. Is he was able to do what he did with the EU and with the DUP with you know uh, when when he pulled his pockets inside out, moths flew. <laughs> yeah, like you know uh, now he actually has he has stuff he can work with. So. Uh, a very surprising I would result. I to though. see a lot of uh, of of debate in the next couple of years over uh, trade deals that treat Scotland differently uh, than the rest of the UK. And is that fair? Is that workable? Et cetera. Uh, probably not on the scale of, of of Northern Ireland, of course, because we're not dealing with a, you know a a a occupied part of a country from a from the from the other country's point of view. But it you know it, it, there could be some some deals where where Scotland he throws a lot of perks Scotland's way that make them feel like they're part of the EU. Although I don't know how much he can do. I don't know my, how much latitude he has has to provide them exceptions, but you're certainly going to try. You're right. All right. Tom, uh, uh, just one last question here. Scale of 1 to 10, how surprised were you by the results? Uh, it's 2. <laughs> no, come uh, on. You, I, did not, you did not come on here on Wednesday and say this is going to be an absolute blowout. No, I guess I'm I'm surprised with the scale. You're right. I, if you're talking about the scale of it, I'd say seven. Uh, but I'm not surprised that the conservatives won. No, uh, no, no, I'm, no. I'm not even surprised that they got a majority. I thought that was a pretty, pretty decent uh, possibility. And I'm not surprised that labor imploded. But you're right. The scale of this is surprising to me. It, it is is a much stronger victory than I expected for the conservatives, and a and a much worse showing for labor than I expected. I I don't think anybody, at least that I spoke to, thought that when I woke up this morning, I'd be seeing Steve Coogan videos, and when I am uh, wrapping up uh, during happy hour here on the West Coast, I'm seeing photoshops of Boris Johnson with. Uh, uh, Margaret Thatcher's haircut. <laughs> yeah, I, I the telling detail for me was when that alert showed up on my phone, like, oh, the the polls have closed, right? And then five minutes later, I got the next alert. I'm like, okay, here here's the early indicator, and it was conservatives win. That's what I was surprised at. I'm like, wow, that must be big if they already know. Because usually it's like, well, conservatives trending well, or it looks it looks like we might see a conservative. No, it was like. Boom. We knew immediately. Well, I mean, we were we were have, you have to have a lot of people saying they voted for conservative on an exit poll for that to be so definitive. We were wrapping up and I was like, well, look, the exit poll I'm seeing here from Sky News is plus 80. And uh, you were like, wait, like 80, 80 the majority <laughs> yeah. like like or 80. Like how on earth? Uh, yeah, that, that, this is a, uh, this is, uh, I, let's just keep using unprecedented till it's meaningless. This is an unprecedented victory for the conservatives. And also a bit of a, 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 a completion of a, a political resurrection for Boris, right? Yes, it like, is. Yeah. He was somebody that, that was thought to be kind of a, a, a castaway that, that, that the, the sins of the remain or the, the, the leave vote had kind of tanked him and now here he is you know the most powerful conservative prime minister since thatcher and he will have to now prove that he can govern in a non-crisis situation yeah. that's going to be the challenge for boris johnson after five years if he wants to remain prime minister is can i prove that i can do it over the long haul not just wade in with the bluff and bluster to to face all my enemies down. He, he's shown he can do that for sure. All right. Tom, at Ace Detect on Twitter. Is there anything else we want to get out there? I know uh, uh, you restarted the, the Daily Tech News Show newsletter, right? Well, I'm thinking about it. Yeah, uh, I, I haven't quite done it. I sent out a test. Uh, but if you want to if you want to. Take part in my beta tests for a possible 2020 relaunch of the Daily Tech News Show newsletter. Uh, go to freetechnewsletter.com. Look at that. All right. Thank you, Tom. You bet. Politics. A reminder, if you want to support this podcast that is going on the road in 2020, we're doing Iowa for sure. We're doing Nevada for sure. We're doing California for sure. We're doing Florida for sure. But if you want me to hit... New Hampshire, you want me to hit South Carolina, please head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That's where you can support this show. Kick in whatever you want, whatever you feel. Also, if you just want to give me money directly, you can do that too. PayPal.me slash Justin R. Young. Also, you can just sign up for my free political newsletter. That's at FreePoliticalNewsletter.com. All right, let's go ahead and get into our big brain interview. 
about tariffs. Politics. I am very pleased to welcome our next guest. He is a professor at the University of Chicago in political science and economics. His name is Robert Galuti, and his new book is Narrowing the Channel, the Politics of Regulatory Protection and International Trade. I know it's a weighty issue, but here's what we're going to try to get out of him. We're going to try to get a primer on tariffs. We're going to find out all about the American history of these tariffs, and if we're lucky... We're going to see if we can get a few predictions about this China trade deal, which, again, yesterday was hinted at by the president of the United States of America. We have some very educated guesses. I'm hoping. I have some educated guesses. We'll see if he does. Well, let's ask him right now. Robert, uh, welcome to the show. Appreciate you having me. All right. So your specialty is on tariffs, and uh, I really want to get into kind of how they work structurally. So let's let's start there. What is a tariff? A tariff is a tax. Uh, essentially, a, it can be a percentage tax or a fixed tax on international trade. So if you want to sell a good in another country, you have to pay a tax in order to get that good into that other market. And, the, and uh, I, these are used by sorry, governments to... These are used by governments to either restrict the level of trade or to raise revenue or to change the composition of trade away from some products and toward others. Uh, now, where where did this uh, originate? Like, where, where, where's the beginning of the tariff system? So uh, it turns out back in the day, it was much harder for kings and local lords or whoever who was in charge of any society to figure out how much money people had hidden in their house or how much money their land was worth. And so things like income taxes or land taxes weren't the way that most governments survived. Instead, what they would do is they would park right outside on the road and they would charge everyone a tax to get into the town or out of the town. So the idea of a tariff, which is essentially a border tax, has been around for as long as we've had cities and communities because it's much easier to tax something where you can put a, at a bottleneck rather than having to figure out what's in each person's house and hidden in each person under each person's uh, bed or something like that. Sure. So tariffs have been around for forever. And, you know, the for the longest time, they were just considered a revenue device, a way of raising funds for fighting wars or paying for the veterans of those wars. So this seems to be something that comes far more to the fore as international trade uh, becomes uh, more of an economic driver. Uh, would, would, would that be correct, or, or do we have a lot of uh, uh, internation tariffs? Yeah, so one of the big accomplishments of, of the U.S. Constitution was to uh, make it so the federal government banned the use of tariffs between the states. But before that, you know, it would cost money to get goods from New York to New Hampshire. So, yeah, uh, turns out that international trade and domestic trade used to be restricted by similar policy instruments. Nowadays, because most countries realize that there are huge economic benefits for having unified markets within their country, they only have barriers outside of their country. And so, yeah, international trade is now where you see tariffs. But even as little as 50 years ago, many societies would have internal taxes. And Canada today still has internal taxes. One of the big wins from the um, the new uh, NAFTA, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, agreement, USMCA, is the elimination of a few more tariffs that still existed within Canada for shipping goods from one province to the others. So in America, are international tariffs, you know, are, are they there with us from the very beginning? Are, are we putting uh, taxes on, on stuff coming in and out? Or, or does that balloon as more international trade becomes bigger business? The United States has always been a trading country. I mean, from the very beginning, the U.S. colonies were designed to trade with England or with the other, uh, the other European powers. We made, for example, uh, potash, which is uh, basically a, 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 a input for agriculture. We made cotton, you know, mm -hmm. uh, as part of the triangular slave trade. We've always been engaged in international trade in this country, and we've always had tariffs on that trade. And in fact, for most of the U.S. development, uh, we had fairly high tariffs on, on manufacturing goods, manufactured goods, that uh, would 
be produced, let's say, in the northern parts of the country. And we, but we'd have relatively um, low barriers on trade with, like, uh, with our uh, colonial partner, England. Now, over the course, when we freed ourselves from England, it was basically the American Revolution. At the very beginning, was a, a fight over taxes, right? Yeah. It was a fight over the taxes on foreign tea. I mean, that tea wasn't being made in the United States. And so, like, it's always been a part of U.S. experience, and it was, for most of America's history, the number one source of revenue besides selling land. So it was the way that the federal government funded itself, for the most part, until we invented an income tax. So the tariff in the United States has, have a, has had a long history, and for most of it, the United States was particularly protected. And and so so we were protecting our own industries and making money on anybody who wanted to access our markets. Yeah, yeah, it was not just a. Um, it, it was a big debate back in the back under like Alexander Hamilton era, whether the tariff should be designed just for revenue or to have a protective purpose as well. But for most of the U.S. history, we've had a protective tariff in the sense that there was some point of protecting American industry from foreign competition in addition to raising revenue. But but the revenue was was primary. That was that was the that was the the, the big thing was just, you know, make sure that we keep we keep the lights on by uh, uh, catching the money coming in. Well, in the middle of the 1800s, essentially, the U.S. Uh, it started raising tariffs, not just for raising money but as a way of protecting domestic industry. Uh, the idea that um, manufacturers in the United States could grow up under the protective shield of tariffs was part of Alexander Hamilton's report on manufacturing. It's been a long-standing uh, idea in the American Republic and something that people like Adam Smith would have disagreed with, but things that has always been part of the American discourse. So it's not just an idea of raising money, but Certainly, that's where we got our money from, but it was also a way of protecting manufacturers, particularly in the north part of the country. And so for the 19th century, so from the 1800s till about the 1950s, the tariff was the main issue of political division in the United States between the parties besides slavery. Huh. That was that was it. That was that was the dividing line was exactly how much we yeah, wanted the to protect our own. The question was. Between the two, the two sides were essentially Southern Democrats who favored free trade and foreign markets for their cotton against Northern manufacturing representatives, mostly Republicans, who promoted a tariff, as well as um, uh, the Western agricultural interests who also had a, a preference for tariffs. So there was a Western and Northern coalition against the South over the question of the tariff and that shaped us politics and was the main political question for most of america's history so when we get to post civil war and uh we we continue to see an, an industrialization of the united states and the international trade continues to grow and grow and becomes a bigger business is there any shifting in uh, the, the the philosophy from the the point of view of the government that uh, uh that you know, these are, are, are good or bad, or does one come into favor? It really depends on who's in power. So whenever the Democrats are in charge, they lower tariffs. Whenever the Republicans are in charge, they raise tariffs. And we have this sort of swing back and forth, depending on who's in office, mm. all the way up until the 1950s. So every time you look at the United States and it was under Republican rule, you could be sure that there'd be very high tariffs. And in uh, under the same, uh, like the next year, if a Democrat came into office, they would try to pass a, a tariff adjustment to lower the tariffs again. At the, they're always debating about, you know, is it better to raise revenue with lower tariffs or higher tariffs? Because, of course, if you raise a tax too high, then you stop importing and then you don't get any money anymore. Yeah. But at the same time, they're arguing about what should the nature of American uh, indus industry be? The U.S. wasn't really a, a competitive in the manufacturing sector uh, against England until right before World War One. Oh, okay. So, so we have two world wars, and then obviously, if if the 1950s things become more complicated, then that comes at the end of FDR and Truman, right? So, yeah, as soon as um, World War One comes around, then America enters the global market as a competitive uh, manufacturing power. Before that, we were an agricultural exporter, 
So we would feed the world and clothe the world in the sense that we would send them the cotton and that it'd be manufactured into clothes in England. But we weren't selling like manufactured goods until that point. And so that's when we see the Republicans who represented all of these manufacturing interests in the North start shifting away from a position of protection. And 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 that that coincides with Eisenhower, right? Yeah. So essentially, it happens over the course of the fifties. Uh, the change in the coalition is gradual. The Republicans continued a relatively protectionist position uh, through that time, but then uh, they changed their platform in nineteen fifty-eight. Aha! Uh-huh. And that and that is for lower tariffs, which would mean more uh, free trade. At the time. Uh, the argument was essentially that we could have negotiations for lowering tariffs at home and abroad at the same time. And it was seen not just as an opportunity for free trade, but as a way of promoting the interests of Europe and defending it against communism. So the Republicans oh. shift away. The Republicans shift away from the tariff was not exactly on the basis of just raw material economic interests and the change in their coalitions, but also a set of arguments that were deployed to say this is really what the world needs to survive. And that if we are going to be a reliable partner on all fronts, economic and militarily, then then we want to make sure that they stay strong economically. And therefore, we need to strengthen these bonds and make it easier for them to trade into our market. Exactly. The Democrats never needed convincing on that front, but the Republicans certainly did uh, take advantage of that argument as a way of justifying the switch in position. And so that that comes with the rise of of the post World War II Red Scare and and the you know the the, the battle for the globe, right? And a creation of inst- a set of institutions which enabled the U.S. to govern global trade under a set of rules, as opposed to uh, being just what countries unilaterally decide. And what were those institutions? So the most important of them was the General Agreements on Tariffs and Trade, the GATT, which is now has become the World Trade Organization. And it was founded in 1947 as a way to make it so that governments could essentially back down from mutual protectionism. Essentially, during the, the 30s, all the, the West and most of the European powers and the big trading powers in the world started raising tariffs against one another. It's so, sort of like a giant trade war. Uh, and this shut off global trade. The, they saw the people who were in power in the 1940s saw it such as FDR argued that this mutual destructive protectionism, this, these trade wars that existed in the 1930s, exacerbated the political tensions that eventually created uh, the war. And so they thought as a way to avoid that war, we needed a way of peacefully negotiating lower tariffs, improving commerce between nations, which they believed would improve relations, but also just having a set of institutions where countries could fight without guns and bullets. And so they created this set of rules that would promote global peace and prosperity, they believed, improve global trading relations, and be an alternative to the old uh, systems that co- countries had for uh, governing global trade. Prior to that, like England would have its colonial sphere, they would trade within that colonial sphere, the US would have its sphere, and those countries. Uh, raise tariffs to everyone outside of it. And they saw that as exacerbating tension. So we wanted one system for all countries that would allow us to negotiate um, and eventually lower tariffs. So past or, or through the 50s, 60s and 70s, you, you start to see some technological advancement uh, advancements, obviously, uh, air travel and air trade being among them. Uh, does that what does that do to kind of just global trade in general and, and then the tariff question specifically? So global trade has improved in bursts, essentially. There was a huge improvement when we were able to have telegraphs and be able to make orders, uh, which happened in the 19th century. In the 20th century, we saw another uh, boom of global trade after the war ended because we weren't fighting each other and we were all growing a great deal in the 1950s. And the invention of things like airplanes and um, improvements in eventually cargo containerization, which happened later in the 20th century, massively improved the efficiency of global trade and reduced the costs associated with it. But biggest changes were ability to communicate, allowing you to plan. Mm. Because if you think about it, shipping is um, 
you're putting your good on a boat. It's going to leave for a while and you're not going to get paid for it right away. You don't know whether it's going to arrive. You don't know whether it did arrive. And so like communication is key when it comes to international trade. And that's definitely improved the ability for countries to trade with one another. Wow. Okay. That's fascinating. So really it's like telegraph, telephone, internet are, are just massive in terms of uh, making sure that everybody can place an order, track an order and pay for the order. Yep. And, and so that along with a backing down from these tariff restrictions means that global trade takes off. It's absolutely right. Particularly with the U S as the center of a trading relation. So the U S is a huge market. Trade is not uh, the largest share of our market the way it is for other countries, but it's still about 20%. Uh, it becomes something like 20% of our GDP. And that's a real opportunity to, to grow. And a lot of, uh, growth and innovation comes from the ability to be engaged in global markets. All right. So that brings us to more of our, our, our modern era and some of the, the modern kind of deals that people would be uh, aware of uh, among the ones that are obviously on the tip of everybody's tongue this week, because there is a new version of it is something like NAFTA. How, how do these big multi-country trade agreements uh, work in terms of standardizing tariffs? Okay, so we in the United States actually has been planning an agreement with Canada since the 30s. We've been wanting to have a, a trade agreement with the. With right, we're getting right around to it. I swear, man, we're gonna. You know, yeah. Next week, uh, next week, we're gonna do it, man. Yeah. So it. Why did it take 50 years? Well, so the U.S. Um, and Canada and Mexico were eventually part of the. World Trade Organization and General Agreements on Tariffs and Trade. And that's where most of their negotiations happened until the 80s. In the 1980s, the U.S. saw an opportunity to basically strike this deal that we've been waiting for forever to, to strike with, um, with Canada. And the big question was, how would this affect the auto industry associated with, with the joint supply chain for North America? Uh, we saw that there's this huge opportunity to take advantage of the labor costs in Mexico. The, the, also, the costs in Canada were relatively low to the United States for various reasons. And so auto companies were really pushing for a deal to be struck where America could get more exclusive access to these countries. So we signed something called a preferential trade agreement. Now, preferential trade agreements are different than the kind of trade agreements that were developed in the GATT WTO in the sense that the GATT WTO deals were available to everybody who's in the organization. So if you remember the WTO or you remember the GATT, mm-hmm. if any country lowered their tariff, every other country would be able to get access to that rate. It's called the most favored nation rate. In a preferential deal, like the one that we would negotiate with Canada and then Mexico and then create NAFTA in the 90s, only the members of the agreement would be able to get access to that tariff rate. There would be no tariffs between the countries that were participating, but you could maintain whatever tariffs you want to anybody outside. Now, the weird thing about that is while we have harmonization down to zero, actually, on tariffs among the members, the external tariffs are different. So Mexico will have a different tariff to Japan than the United States will have to Japan. This creates weird incentives. You could produce and you could send a good to Mexico and then try to ship it to the United States. And so the creation of the preferential trade agreement also has to introduce all sorts of regulations for the trans uh, the shipment of goods that will satisfy these low tariff rates. They're called rules of origin requirements. It essentially says goods that are going to get this low tariff that we're going to negotiate between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico have to be produced in one of those countries in order to get access. The rules of origin requirement was designed to exclude, in particular, Japanese auto companies that would be able to use their parts networks from Japan, ship the products to Mexico to be assembled, and then shipped right into the United States mm. for competition with the big three. So a lot of what NAFTA was, was setting up the rules to prevent that sort of thing from happening and to encourage trade to happen only within the three countries that were at issue. Which, if you look at the the future from that point of the big three automakers and, you know, uh, the, the relative uh, continued success of the Japanese automakers, it doesn't seem to have done the job that it wanted to do. Well, it's definitely true that 
the Japanese companies continued to enter the American market, started producing in the United States, they're not exposed to the tariff at all, right? So if you produce the Honda in South Carolina, then you mm -hmm. don't need to pay the tariff at all. Uh, and that was part of the incentive structure that was created with these high tariffs against Japan. Is that it just encouraged them to do investments in the United States, hire American workers, which we liked, and also sell lots of cars, which we liked. Now, this wasn't good for the big three. That's true. But the question is whether the big three would be any better off today if they weren't able to take advantage of this, low, this cheap labor in Mexico. Mm. It's not clear they would even exist if not for the existence of a unified market in North America. So then, if they were stuck for hiring only Americans, there probably wouldn't be a, an American auto industry. So then the, the, the question becomes, did the deal, which is inherently protectionist, did it keep these companies alive when maybe they should have gone under? It's possible. Um, I mean, in general, it's, it's, a, it's a combination of protectionism and opening markets within, right? So it's a protectionist deal in the sense that it's blocking others from gaining, gaining access to this open market. Yeah. Um, realistically, the, auto, the automotive sector was such an important part of U.S. manufacturing. It doesn't make sense from a political perspective that we would just allow it to fail. It's embedded very deeply in a lot of uh, a good part of the American electorate, and to allow it to just die is uh, would be unreasonable gotcha. <laughs> from the perspective of uh, democracy. Even even if they are companies that are 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 flawed or or not you know uh, improving enough to to succeed without the help. This is a big issue not just for the question of whether the government's picking winners and losers, but also from the perspective of the environment, if you think about it, anything that helps the automotive industry survive is something that is continuing the, the use of automo automobiles, right? Which are terrible for the environment. So there's all sorts of costs to this, but we don't have an alternative in the sense that they're such an important part of the economies, particularly in the Midwest, where and it's not just the automotive industries that would go down. There are millions of people that work in affiliated industries, not just people that are selling the cars, but people that are producing all of the uh, advertisements for the cars and, and producing all the parts for the cars and producing all the ser doing all the service for the cars. Destruction of the American auto industry would have been devastating to a wide swath of the country. We see now what's, what happens when there are concentrated costs associated with um, factory closures from the mm -hmm. competition with China. And it's uh, it can be devastating for communities and those losses don't recover easily. So let's get into that because obviously the China question is the biggest in our modern trade conversation. Uh, where When does China become the economic powerhouse that it is today and how has our relationship with it changed? So China was allowed to join the WTO in the sense of, that we didn't veto their membership, we encouraged their membership in 2002. Prior to that, they had access to the American market through something called permanent normal trading relations, essentially since the late Reagan era. And that was a deal that had to be approved every year by Congress. So all throughout the 90s, China was able to access the American market, but it had to be approved every year by Congress, they had to reauthorize it. Now, when they join the World Trade Organization, they become a full member of the WTO, just like every other member of the WTO, and they get the same promises every other country gets, and that means the US can no longer hold up um, their continued access uh, by Senate votes. They have permanent uh, access. And this allowed China to massively invest in exporting to the United States and allowed American companies to massively invest in exporting to China. And that really expanded trading relations between the two countries. It was basically starting in 2002 that trading, trade flows between the two countries started really ramping up. And it's been, his, it's been a historic shift in global trading patterns for China's entry into the globe, their growth, and the extent to which that growth affects American companies that would, were working and producing in those sectors. Uh, and, and that, I'll, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So I'll say 
China's growth and rise is not just a tariff issue. Like I said, they had low tariffs essentially since the 80s from the United States. It also reflects a series of economic reforms that they did within China to essentially adopt a capitalist mode of production for many of their sectors. They've basically eliminated state-owned enterprises in most of the manufacturing sectors. They only have large state-owned enterprises in charge of energy and oil and industries like that, whereas they're allowing uh, private companies to produce in other sectors, including, and this is important, American multinationals. Those American multinationals and Japanese multinationals and Korean multinationals that produce in China are responsible for much of the trade that's entering the United States. So it turns out much of the increase in trade that we've experienced over the last few decades is actually trade governed and run by American and foreign multinationals that are doing business in China, taking advantage of the labor opportunities there. So uh, in comes Donald Trump, who runs, uh, you know, on a lot of economic anxiety issues, China and specifically renegotiating a trade deal uh, uh, with China among them. Uh, I feel like obviously that is something that voters cared about, at least enough to in part put him in the White House. But what does that mean? Like, how, how do we get, uh, you know, under control or get ourselves uh, in a in a more reciprocal relationship, to put it in the Trumpian terms, with China? So right now, what we have is a trade war in the sense that both countries are raising massive tariffs against one another. We raised something like $250 billion of tariffs against China in 2018. And China raised uh, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of tariffs against the United States. And what this has done is it's dropped the amount of trade between the two countries. But it hasn't uh, created anything like the kind of trade balance that Trump was seeking Although if we completely cut it off, cut off trade to zero between the two countries, I suppose it would be balanced. <laughs> yes. And p- part of the reason that it hasn't reached uh, balance is because the problems, uh, the problem of trade is that you can't just unilaterally decide that we're going to do all the exports and we're not going to import anything. The other country can respond with its own tariffs and its own policies. So it's not clear that like just unilaterally we can decide what to trade with China. His hope is that by putting a lot of pain on China, their government will crumble and decide that it's going to have to change its policies domestically and reorient the amount of exports they do to the United States. It's not clear that's going to work, but uh, that did work against Japan in the 1980s. So it's possible that the lesson that Trump drew from that period was that with enough pressure and enough time and patience, eventually there will be a deal such that uh, the trade flows are re-equilibrated. And so the the idea is that we would send uh, at least closer to the same amount of stuff to them that they send to us. The goal there is, uh, from the perspective of the Trump administration, is to create uh, more of a trade balance in terms of goods flows. Right now we have a balance, if you think about both goods and services, uh, but from the perspective of manufactured goods, we import much more than we export to China. And they hope that they could change that fact by encouraging the Chinese state to, for example, buy more U.S. agricultural products. But there's something a little bit strange about the entire enterprise. So there's a kind of a a conflict of interests here. To some degree, Trump was arguing that Chinese manufacturing was devastating to the communities in the United States that had to compete with that manufacturing. And that's probably true. It was devastating to those communities. But if the goal is to create a trade balance, it's not necessarily the case that those are the communities that are going to be doing all the exporting to those countries. In fact, the exports tend to come from the coasts. So it's not clear that the communities that he was appealing to are going to be the beneficiaries of any improvement in the trading relations between the two countries. One way to think about that is, in addition, one of the asks of China is that they change their intellectual property provisions. Yeah. While that's really great for intellectual property innovators, people that are coming up with the new technologies, 
those communities aren't the people that were producing those new technologies. Like you can improve China's uh, openness to American Hollywood movies too. Like right now they're only allowed to sell a certain number of American Hollywood blockbusters, but is enriching people in LA really what he campaigned on? So it's not obvious to me that the kinds of things that we would actually be able to extract from China in the sense of making concessions are the kinds of things that he was campaigning on or the kinds of things that benefit the communities that were exposed to import competition from China. And so those would be Midwest and, uh, you know, Iowa, Michigan, Wisconsin, that kind of stuff. Right. So, I mean, it's not that those countries don't export at all, but the idea that the problem that they were facing was barriers in China is just not right. In fact, those are the very places that were exporting to China uh, through soybean exports, through airplanes or agricultural equipment, medical equipment. Those are all big exports to the United States to places like China, and they weren't facing that high of barriers in that country. So it, again, it's not obvious that the kinds of things that we're going to be able to extract were the kinds of things that we need. The kinds of things we can extract are access to American for American financial companies or for, again, technology sector companies. But they weren't exactly hurting and they weren't the they're not the people that were having to compete with Chinese products in the United States. And so that that is the, the right now, the battle is a raising of tariffs to the point where someone's going to say uncle. Right. And then the deal would be, at least from the United States perspective, that the Chinese state agrees to buy more stuff from us, that we get guarantees from them, as well as, like you mentioned before, more access to their movie markets and more uh, protections when it comes to intellectual property. That would be the deal. Yeah. Now, realistically, they have already made such a deal. The deal that they offered, China, uh, China offered the uh, United States was rejected by the Trump administration and they were shocked at that rejection. So it's not obvious that actually what the Trump administration wants is a deal. It may just be that they benefit from the fight, showing that they are holding out and pushing for more from the Chinese. And would that, in your opinion, be partly to just put pressure on, on Chairman Xi and, and the current Chinese leadership to, to try to you know, maybe damage that hold on control? It could be too, but I, I don't think that the goal of the United States is to disrupt the Chinese leadership. Uh, that would be very disruptive from the perspective of U.S. Uh, commercial relations, as well as any prospects of uh, uh, continued, uh, you know, not exactly peace here, but yeah. you know, not getting into conflict. I rather think that this is more of an electoral strategy to say, uh, look, I care for you, the forgotten silent working man of the United States, and I'm fighting the people that displaced you every day. And if you were to cut a deal, they would have to evaluate whether that deal actually helps them or not. But if he says, no, I'm just continuing to fight because I'm going to get something better, then they can maybe he can hold out that as a benefit of reelecting him. So past past the election, you think? Oh, absolutely. Oh, because I've always operated under the idea that I think you know. Look, the the if this fight is indeed as you said performative, then ending it with a flourish right before election day would be would be the way to go. While that would make sense to some degree, I think I think it would make sense from the you get this huge economic boom, basically, that would happen immediately. The stock market would reward him greatly for ending the trade war. But um, it may be that that's not the, not, uh, it depends on the calculations that he wants to make. Um, if I were him, I would end it, I would end it yesterday, because yeah. I think the longer you end it, the more you will benefit from the perspective of the economic growth that will be generated by ending it. But if you if your goal is the symbolic victory, you could do it right beforehand. If your goal is to show a very small subset of the American people that you're going to continue fighting for them, maybe you wait till after the election. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting question because I, 
I do think that the the advantage of any incumbent president, you know, beyond Trump, is that you get to do president stuff. And I don't know if there's anything more president stuffy, which is a technical term, than signing a gigantic trade deal with China, at least in 2019 and 2020. Uh, I mean, he can't sign a deal, right? Yeah. Because uh, the con- the Constitution uh, guarantees the right to taxation to the to the to the Congress. But what he can do is withdraw the tariffs that he has imposed. Sure. Any sort of substantial trade deal would require ratification or at least approval by the U.S. legislatures. And there's just no way that they would do that for him. So, Although they did. I, I mean, the, the, it, you, you had Nancy Pelosi minutes after talking about the articles of impeachment saying how good the new NAFTA is. Absolutely. Uh, and that's pretty amazing that they were willing to give up the provisions that they were willing to give up to get them to do that. They dropped the demands and biologics, which is uh, incredible because that's what uh, the Republicans were willing to block the TPP over. And they were willing to give up uh, a bunch of concessions on labor, which traditionally the Republicans would have never accepted in a, in a trade deal or any other kind of uh, deal. So it's pretty impressive that they were able to get those concessions, I think. Um, but I don't think that's the size of the deal that would happen if it was a unilateral move by Trump. Gotcha. Uh, it would be more like the Chinese would agree to buy American agricultural products, make some reforms that they were going to make anyway on intellectual property, and then the U.S. would agree to back down on their hundreds of billions of dollars of tariffs. I'm sure there'd probably be a some kind of photo opportunity, though, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. But, you know, it, what's better, a photo opportunity where you're shaking hands with our, the enemies of the United States or you're shaking your fist at them? It's not obvious. Yeah. I mean, although that, that does seem to be part of the Trump doctrine is that uh, everybody is your mortal enemy until they're your best friend, uh, even if you're Kim Jong-un. So which is another factor of I, all I, this China I, stuff. I do. I do think. OK, so. I think it would be smart for him to end the deal, uh, make a deal sometime a few months before the election so that he can have an opportunity to say, look, not only did I fight for you, I got this really great deal out of it. Yeah. And I'm sure the Chinese state would go along with it. And so, like, it's perfectly available to him. But the, the any deal that he strikes is not going to make any significant dent on the, on the uh, trade balance. And so there, he would immediately get all this criticism saying like, oh, you went through all this work and we're still selling out the country to the Chinese. I don't know. I think it, maybe it depends on who the Democrat is, but I could imagine a more left-wing Democrat running to the right of him against, uh, on this issue. And, and saying that... And saying they, we needed a harder deal. Oh, really? I wouldn't, have, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have struck this deal with the Chinese. Yeah. Oh, that'd be fascinating. I mean, that would be traditionally the Democrat. I mean, like for the past 50 years, the Democrats have been the party more skeptical of trade agreements. And so they're in a perfect position to credibly say, I would not sign that deal. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Well, you know, especially somebody like Bernie Sanders, who was, you know, railing against NAFTA in 1993 and could could certainly take that. Even Elizabeth Warren has been very skeptical of these pro corporate trade deals, which they are. And it makes sense that they would be opposed to them. Well, my guest has been uh, Robert Galuti. Uh, your new book is Narrowing the Channel, The Politics of Regulatory Protection and International Trade, which you can pre-order now. And, of course, you are an assistant professor of political science at the University of Chicago. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Politics! And that will wrap it up for us today. I want to thank our guests, Tom Merritt and Robert Galuti. I love that tariff interview, man. I love doing these interviews. I hope you guys like them because I love doing. I love talking to these these professors. Know a lot of stuff. I just get. I love the context. I just love the history. I don't know. I just feel smarter. I just don't feel like I'm kind of whipping in the wind like a flag during a a, a very very stiff breeze. That's what it feels like on Twitter, just getting pulled and pushed and. Then an expert says a thing, then another expert says another thing. I think it's just good to know some of this stuff. Anyhow, I'd like to thank our Titanic $10 tier. 
Squid's Mixtape, Jamie, Ryan, Adam, Jonathan, D-Laser, Andy, Paul, Mike, and Brad. If you want to join their ranks, head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. All right. That wraps it up for us. Folks, if you want to email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can sign up for my free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. You can follow me on any and all platforms at Justin R. Young. Until next time, this is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, telling you that politics has three names. And I saw somebody that was talking about politics. I saw somebody else that was talking about politics. And I heard somebody out there in the UK talking about politics. But this is the only show that talks about Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>